Welcome to No Matter What. I'm Hannah Seymour, and this podcast is all about being who God created you to be no matter what. No matter your past, your current circumstances, no matter your relationship status, your career journey, no matter what life throws at you. Each episode, I invite a friend to talk about what that actually looks like, to be who God created you to be no matter what. Welcome to No Matter What. As y'all know, I'm Hannah Seymour, and today I am so excited. Number one, it is election day. If you are listening uh, today, when it releases, it is election day, and so I thought there was no better person to call up and have a conversation with than an old family friend of mine, Sarah Bauer Anderson. Let me tell you a little bit about Sarah. Sarah is a native of the greater Washington, D.C. area, and that is how I know Sarah. Our parents were friends back in the D.C. area. She is a current resident of the Bible Belt. Sarah has spent her whole life learning to live in the tension that politics and religion create and striving to learn how to best navigate the complicated issues and emotional conversations around these weightier topics. She is a writer and a speaker. She has worked for Orange, which is an organization committed to helping families and churches partner together to invest in the spiritual growth of the next generation. And Sarah currently lives in Roswell, Georgia with her husband and two boys. Sarah, thank you for coming on no matter what. Thank you for having me. It's so fun to be here. Oh man. I just love when like the blast from the past and I get opportunities to talk (laughs) to folks on the show who, you know, I mean, you and I have like touch base off and on over the years for like random things, but it's just so fun. I think you were four years ahead of me in school, but it was like, I always, you know, I know I feel like from afar. Circles did kind of, we, we crossed paths. I yeah. feel like a fair bit youth group. What, what year did you graduate? Um, high school was Oh two. Okay. I was 99. So yeah. Okay. I three feel years. like mm-hmm. overlapped there. Yep. And then your little brother, Zach, I think was Jesse, my little sister's age. I think okay, they were the yeah, same. Anyway, yeah. I, I have a memory. I think of Zach, like breaking, um, some ligament, an arm or leg or something at our house, I think. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Well, you have a better memory of his life than I do. Uh, You probably weren't there for it, you know. Um, Okay, (laughs) Sarah. So the point of this show is I talk to different folks really about, tell us about seasons where you have been faced with a question, am I going to be who God has created me to be no matter what in this season of hardship or disappointment or loss? And I think one thing that all of us are experiencing right now in 2020, but we've certainly done it before and we will certainly do it again. It's just the overwhelming tension that politics and religion are currently creating for us in our lives. And so I want to talk about how do we be who God has created us to be amidst the tension that politics and religion create and all of this, as you term it, all this space that is created between people that we love, between people that we hate, between all these folks that hold differing opinions. So to start, would you kind of, I mean, tell us about your background or upbringing and tell us about kind of when you started getting to a place where you began struggling with that tension of politics and religion. Yeah. So like you mentioned, we grew up in the same kind of area in the suburbs of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. Um, My parents both moved to D.C. independently of each other um, after they graduated from college and they met working at the Republican National Committee. So they have been um, spent their entire adult lives involved in politics. My family is just always very political, not just because of where we lived, but because of my parents' interest in it. And my dad worked on the Reagan uh, campaign and then in the Reagan administration as Undersecretary of Education and then chief domestic policy advisor to the president. 
And then in 1999, he uh, decided to run for president himself and threw his hat into the um, Republican nomination process, which we kind of have seen this past year with the Democrats and um, saw four years ago with both parties. So he was one of the guys that was kind of like, you know, in the beginning when there's just a lot of people kind of doing the debate circuit and the campaigning around the country, that was him. Um, he uh, obviously lost the nomination to a guy named George W. Bush, who ended up winning the presidency. <laughs> but um, that experience just kind of, it took us a little bit more behind the scenes of the, of the political process up until that point. We had really experienced the perks of being in the political world, you know, being able to go to like inaugurations and Easter egg hunts at the White House and that kind of thing. But this was kind of like the underbelly of politics a little bit. And I just kind of started to see um, how antagonistic it could become and not just between what you might expect with Republicans versus Democrats, but in the primary season when the conflict is between the same party mm. and, and you're going, wait, these are people we would normally consider friends. Now we're starting to talk about them like they're adversaries over the smallest little differences in um, ideologies or policies. And, and so it kind of just felt the tension of, I don't know, just a lot of anger and animosity where there didn't necessarily need to be any. And I didn't love that just given my, my temperament and personality. Mm. Um, and so I, I really kind of decided at that point when I was a senior in high school and, and he was running that I did not want to come back to Washington for that reason. I did not love the experience of my, of my dad running and what that meant for our family. Um, and so I left Washington and did not move back there and, and moved down here. And kind of what happens, I think, in a lot of families as kids become adults and have their own sort of experience. I just, I found that we didn't always land on the same page politically once I kind of reached adulthood. And my brother, my sister, both have spent their entire professional careers involved in politics. And so the, the, the case with our family was we couldn't not talk about it. Like I think a lot of families are able to do because there's so many other things you can kind of busy yourself with. But my family is so involved that not talking about it wasn't an option. Mm. So I kind of felt like we have to figure out a way to have these conversations, even when we're not landing on the same page. And for a long time, um, I think I probably was more quiet than, than outspoken about anything just for fear of rocking the boat about anything. But eventually it just started to feel like that's not helpful either. Ignoring the tension isn't helpful. Mm-hmm. Staying quiet isn't helpful. We've got to figure out a way to have dialogue around these ideas where we don't see eye to eye instead of just pretending they don't exist or pretending that we're all on the same page. And that was challenging for me in my family because I really wondered with how involved they were, um, if that would change the relationship that we had. Like this politics is such a part of um, my family's just DNA. And I I literally, I write about in my book that I I remember having a political conversation with my mom at one point and making her cry. Mm -hmm. Like there there was like this emotional reaction um, in our family to, to politics. And so I really worried about what could be on the line for deciding to kind of speak up about things that we didn't necessarily agree on. And the real gift that my family gave me was their gift of relationship and connection and presence, even when we didn't land on the same page. And I just thought, you know, more and more people are finding themselves there. We're just, we're, we're trying to figure out how to connect with people that we don't see eye to eye with. And we, and my family hasn't gotten it right all the time, but this is kind of what we've learned in the process. Cause I think all of us could use a little bit of encouragement and mm-hmm. figuring out how to do this. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where the book was birthed from just deciding to put down on paper what I've learned so far and kind of my journey into that space. And back up a little bit to when you first started college, I believe you went to Grove City, is that right? Yeah. And you, I mean, while you had started experiencing 
kind of the challenge of seeing people that you thought were friends and fellow Republicans tearing down your dad, you were still like a hundred percent. I am an evangelical Christian Republican. Like I, every, everything I believe is right. Everything that I have been raised to believe is right. And you are wrong if you differ with me at all. Tell us about the time when you started wondering. (laughs) Yes. No, you're, you're 100% right. And I don't think it was, I don't know that I was ever explicitly told Republican or Christian equals Republican, but that was just what I grew up thinking that it was kind of like, I didn't know anybody who was a Christian and wasn't a Republican. They seemed very synonymous. So I went to this evangelical college literally, I would say 99% of us on campus were white evangelical conservatives. And I was like, this is amazing. Why would I want to be surrounded by anybody else? Like, this is perfect. And I was leaving a dorm on one side of campus and in the um, stairwell, there's a poster hanging up advertising the young Democrats club. And it like blew my mind because I didn't think we had any Democrats that went here. I was like, who are they? Where where are they hiding? Or that if we'd had them, there were enough to make a club. I was like, maybe one or two, but who are these people? Um, But the thing that cracked me up, but also kind of unsettled me was what it said underneath, uh, you know, the time and location. And it said, um, Jesus loves Democrats too. And it was kind of like this tongue in cheek thing. And I remember thinking, yeah, he he loves everybody, but he likes Republicans Mm -hmm. more because we obviously represent everything that he does. But just that kind of like this dissonance of like, wait, maybe, maybe Jesus doesn't vote a straight Republican Mm -hmm. ticket. Maybe Jesus isn't this white middle-class American man, like I kind of envisioned him to be. And maybe there was kind of more to it than that. So that was kind of like this first crack in the worldview Um, but I kind of dismissed it. And then there was just, you know, um, circumstances kind of along the way as more, you know, a couple in college, out of college, and then moving down here and leaving kind of the bubble that I had grown up in and just starting to realize, wow, there's just a lot more nuance when it comes to politics and when it comes to how the, how our faith plays into it. And it just, it rattled me a little bit, but then there was also something really appealing to start to see that maybe it wasn't just these diametrically opposed teams. Maybe there was just some overlap. Maybe there are these ideas that resonated with Christians on both sides. And maybe there was more than one way to follow Jesus in the world. And it wasn't just being a conservative Republican. Mm. There is a Facebook post that several people have sent me over the past week, which is interesting. And it says, Kamala is beloved. Donald was fearfully and wonderfully created. Mike is cherished. Joe was important enough for Christ to die for him doesn't mean we can't disagree or stand for what is right and against what is wrong. It just means if we are gospel loving Christians, we see them first as people for whom Christ died. Mm-hmm. So good. When we read that or see that if we are Bible believing Christians, we can go, yes, that is true. That is true. And yet at the same time, there are a lot of Christians that would choke over the first four <laughs> sentences that I read. Why? Yeah. Um, I just, I think it's easier to live in binaries and I think it's just a lot easier to decide that Jesus is on my team and is not on yours because I think it allows us to excuse a lot of bad behavior. If God's on your team, then you can get away with mistreating someone because you think, well, God would do it. God's with me. I don't have to think critically about your position 
if I think God is on my side. Mm. And I think that's, and it's easier to do that. It is harder to live in a world where there are nuances, where we have to engage actual people, where there's complications with those people, where it's not just black and white in our positions or the things that led us to believe the things that we do. I think it's hard because we want to believe there is a good and evil side when it comes to who we vote for and how that plays out. But I just, I think that we, we've lost the plot as followers of Jesus, if that's the way that we start to think of politics and treat the politicians behind it. Because I I remember when my dad was running, that was one of the things that bothered me the most, how little you could control the narrative about yourself and how easily people would make judgments about him or our family based on a, you know a policy opinion he had instead of knowing what really made him him you know i wanted them to know that how much he loved terrible sci-fi movies like that's what my dad was <laughs> it wasn't that he felt this way about china you know yeah. like there was things that made him him and the problem with you know living in a world where we get all of our information from these two dimensional figures on a screen is that we never really get to know the nuances of a human and that mm-hmm. you know these are politicians that go home to families every night that had parents that raised them that had hopes and dreams who like their coffee made a certain way who you know the, who were afraid of the dark when they were little kids like these these are the things that make them human and that makes it trickier to um talk badly about them and to mm-hmm. think badly about them but i think that that's the point i think it's supposed to be tricky and i think that um when we've oversimplified it and we see them just as wrong or bad i think we've lost the image of god in them yeah. I have a brother-in-law who's a country artist and Mm -hmm. by watching him one, just grow and increase in success in the industry, but also, you know, having best friends that are in the industry of very famous people that like every American would know these folks' names. Well, if you listen to country radio, I guess (laughs) (laughs) some pop do though, but I have learned through them. It took the, Oh, these are just celebrities, even for actresses and actors like these are real people. And because I've been in situations where I've heard someone bad mouthing some country artist. And I mean, I want to stand up and defend them and be like, that is a really good person. And it's actually my brother in law's best friend. And, you know, like, I don't <laughs> yeah. care that you don't have to like their music. You don't have to listen to it. But why is this like so personally offensive to you that you're, you know, bad mouthing them? And yeah. It's just totally changed the way that I look. I mean, there are definitely some country artists that I don't love, but like, I'm never going to be like, I hate that guy. I hate that girl, you know, whatever. Because again, I think, well, that's a husband and a dad and a friend and a, and you were just talking about this, but you wrote a blog post years ago and then you've been talking about it more recently on your Instagram. And it's definitely in your book, just this idea of really understanding the humanity of politicians. Um, And so one, how should that impact the way that we post and engage on social media? And then not just about politicians themselves, but then in engaging with anyone who has differing opinions of remembering their humanity. Yeah. Well, I think we touched on an interesting point because you were saying, you know, you've seen this outplay that with like musicians or country artists and and you can imagine how much more complicated it becomes when you throw in like morality issues and yes. not just take music. Like right. it makes it that much harder. So it's understandable that it's easier for us to kind of default to these good, bad kind of plot lines when it comes to people. Um, the thing I try to remember when it comes to engaging with social media and these things is I'm not sure we can continue to look at news outlets on the internet or maybe even cable news as their primary job of being to communicate the news to us. And I'm not saying that because, you know, media is evil. Like that's not the point. I'm saying it because they are 
trying to buy our attention. And the things that buy our attention are the things that entertain us and that kind of get us emotionally worked up. And so they're going to create headlines that are more like clickbait. They're going to write things that are going to lure you into reading them and staying on their page longer. And again, this isn't like conspiracy theory stuff. This is just, there's going to be ways that the news is going to be framed or stories about certain individuals are going to be framed to get us to kind of have an emotional reaction because that's the stuff that goes viral. That's the stuff that trends. That's the stuff that's going to keep our attention the longest. And so I think we just, we've got to start engaging with any social media post, any you know article we're reading or news channel we're watching, asking ourselves the question, what like what is the actual truth behind this, and what is it that's trying they're trying to do to keep my attention here? Because it's not always going to be the same. And I get it. Like I've fallen prey to the click on this to see what this '80s child star looks like. I'm like, <laughs> yes, for sure. Like I want to know. But like we just can't trust that every click is going to tell us the real story. Yeah. And so just having to do our homework and knowing that. Any story, for the most part, any story that makes things look very black and white, very right and wrong, that this is the good side, this is the bad side, is oversimplifying the narrative, mm. that we need to lean in and do our own research and find out more of the backstory. It's so much easier to make the snap judgments. Um, it makes us feel better to make the snap judgments, but it's not helping us develop critical thinking skills. And I think when it comes to politics, we really need critical thinking skills. Mm -hmm. We can't afford to lose that. Okay. So a hypothetical situation, your aunt or your high school best friend posts on Facebook about how you cannot be a Christian and vote for Donald Trump or the opposite. You cannot be a Christian and vote for Joe Biden. Right. And they give all these reasons why and basically say, you know, you can't be a Christian. And I denounce you if that is your Christianity, whatever. How does one respond? Yeah. Well, when it comes to people that I know, I would say people I know like a best friend or a relative, I would be like, Hey, can we, you know, have a conversation offline? Because most of the time, any, anytime there's something that's like, so reactionary, I, I just, it's more like entertainment for other people to kind of like watch than mm -hmm. it is actual dialogue. Mm -hmm. So it always makes me nervous when that kind of stuff unfolds on a screen. So I would probably want to engage it offline, but to me, I just, I would try to talk about the fact, you know, as non-emotionally as possible that, you know, Jesus is not a registered Republican and he's not a registered Democrat and we can't pick a team for him and expect that that would be the team he fits on. That anytime we are trying to fit Jesus into one box or another or one side or another, it's more likely that we're following an idolized version of ourself than we are of him. Mm -hmm. and, and that should be a little bit of a red flag. Like Jesus should probably not agree with every single political position we hold, because that means we probably aren't really knowing him. And that, and I think that when we look at the gospels and we look at the, you know, the stories of, of the encounters that Jesus had, Jesus was disrupting categories for as long as he's been around. Like that was part of what he did when he came to earth. Like the people, you know, the, yeah. the people on the margins and the oppressed thought that that was only he would, who he was for. And he was against the powerful and he was against the rich. And then he, he would have dinner with tax collectors yep. and then it would make the people mad. So it was kind of like, he's always been in the business of upsetting our categories. Mm. So I think that we just need to remember that he doesn't fit one way or the other. I think that, um, you know, Republicans have had a long history of claiming Jesus for their side. You know, the moral majority has 
had a long history of, of wanting to say that this is how Christians should vote and how mm-hmm. Jesus would vote. And now I think we're seeing the opposite happen with Democrats as well. So I think it just, it's an easy card to play, but it's not, um, it's not healthy. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it is a form of idolatry mm-hmm. to basically say, this is how Jesus would vote and to say it with so much confidence. Yeah. I just, I don't, that's a position I don't want to be in yeah. judging who Jesus would vote for. Yeah. Derwin Gray. Do you know of him? Uh-huh. He's Atlanta-based yeah. hazard. Yeah. Um, he's said this a few times and I don't know if this is like his original thought and it's kind of kitschy, but I still love it. It's yeah. don't let yeah. an elephant or a donkey rip apart what the lamb brought together. That's and, good. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I do, I do love that. Cause I think, I think a lot of us, you're right. Like think Jesus is a Republican or think Jesus is a Democrat. And the truth is just, he's just not <laughs> like no, in, our, right. in our very um, black and white bipartisan world. I don't think Jesus was, well, I guess he's black and white on some things, but. <laughs> well, I think that's what's so tricky though, because I think people were making every issue black and white uh-huh. and, and it's, they're just not, but there are some, you're right. And I think that's where it gets, it can get complicated. And again, that's where there's nuance and trying to understand what are the issues that really are black and white? What are the hills you need to die on and say, no, as a believer, I really feel like this is important, Mm -hmm. but, but understand that not everything can be that. And that there are really great people who just have a different understanding of what that their faith looks like played out. And that's not necessarily bad, but trying to determine the difference can be complicated, you know? Yeah. So talk about that. Cause that's one thing you talk about in your book is kind of figuring out what are non-essential debates, but how does someone even, cause you're right. I think most of us are trying to, you know, we have like 800 Hills that we want to die on and that's just not in politics and religion, right? Like we can completely take politics out of this conversation and people can get really upset about, you know, baptism. Um, I mean, just like, like things that are crazy that, I mean, I'm like, this is not a hill to die on people, but, but we are up in arms about all sorts of things. So how do we figure out what's essential and what's non-essential? Yeah. Well, I think you're exactly right. We've treated every hill like it's a hill to die on. And when every hill is that, then none of them are right. Because we start to lose our influence. We become like white noise when everything is something we want to engage in an argument about. And these are conversations I'm having with my kids. I'm like, pick your battles. I am not going to engage in an argument with you over every little thing, but care, argue with me about the things you care about. Like, let's talk about it. But if you're arguing with me about everything, I'm just going to stop listening. Like that's exhausting. Um, so I think that that's, that's the problem. We start to think everything is worth an argument and then nothing is. And to me, I, I kind of try to divide it up into these three different categories of, of having to figure out what are your beliefs, convictions, and opinions. And beliefs are the things that, yes, I 100%, I am not willing to budge on this. Like my beliefs on this matter are so strong and so important to me. They're really identity forming in a lot of ways. Like this makes me who I am, where I stand on this particular issue. Convictions are the things we have strong feelings about, but we also understand people think differently about them. Maybe other believers think differently about them and we don't understand how they landed there, but we're willing to say, you know, we can respect the the conclusions that they've drawn and where they've landed on it. And then opinions are the things that we might have an idea, but it could change tomorrow. Most likely we don't, aren't aren't very informed about this topic. You know, we're just kind of like, I don't know. It feels like I should think this, but I honestly don't know enough about it to to draw one conclusion or the other. And so just figuring out what are the things that, that are, you're really going to plant your stakes in the ground and be like, this is the stuff I want to pay attention to. Um, The other thing that I think is important when it comes to morality issues. I I talk a little bit about this in my book, The The Righteous Mind was written by a social psychologist named Jonathan Haidt. And he um, did a lot of work on moral foundations and kind of 
came up with this, this theory that every human has these six moral foundations that we are kind of born with. And he kind of compares them to taste buds, like we're all born with different taste buds. But then depending on the culture that you grew up in, or, you know, some of it's genetic DNA, um, where in the country you live, your education, all these different things are going to elevate different moral foundations to be more important than other ones, just like taste buds, like there's different parts of the, of the world that will highlight spicy more than sweet or, you know, vice versa. And his whole point is, you know, they're all moral foundations. So they're all moral ideas. It's not saying that he's not even addressing the immoral side of things. What he's saying is, that the, these moral foundations are in competition with each other and that they can't all be elevated all the time in one person. We all have to choose the few that we're going to stand up for. And they are, there's going to be conflict. Like there are some foundations that are going to be in conflict with other ones that doesn't make one better than the other. It means we have to figure out how to serve as like a sort of checks and balances with each other. Mm. And I think just understanding that there are people who come from a different understanding of their morality foundations, things that they elevate in their culture or their background that's going to look different mm. than what we do. And that, again, this is not an immorality issue. This isn't saying like, oh, well, your your moral foundation is pro-racism. Like, we're not saying that. That's right. not issues. But we're saying that there are things that we can disagree on that are equally important that are going to live in tension and figuring out how to say that's okay if you choose a different idea to kind of capitalize on than what I chose. Mm. And there, that doesn't make them wrong and it doesn't make them bad. It just makes them different. Mm. Okay. So we are recording this mid-October, but we are traveling to the future. It is officially November 3rd or after, but um, <laughs> how do we... So you know, some of us aren't even going to vote on November 3rd. Yeah. Some yeah. of us are, we're all going to be asked, like almost everyone's going to ask you, well, who'd you vote for today? A, yeah. did you vote? Did you vote today? Who'd you vote for? Um, so some of us are going to vote, but we're not going to want to tell anyone who we voted for. And then others of us are going to feel great about who we vote for, proud, and it, that is going to cause conflict as well to the people we're talking to. So how, like just practically speaking, how do we not only survive election day and following, because some people are going to be angry and some people are going to be thrilled no matter what happens. <laughs> that's right. That's um, right. Yeah. How, how do we practically not only like get through it, but gosh, maybe like lean into the tension and grow as people. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's exactly it. The leaning into it. Um, I think that'd be my, my first tip would be to, to not stop engaging um, because I think you're right. The emotion isn't going to go anywhere. And I think if we start to see the election day as the finish line, we're going to be very disappointed yeah. on November 4th when we wake up and things are still just as complicated as they were. So I think we need to prepare for a marathon, not a sprint when it comes to how we um, engage with people and the tensions that we're all feeling. But yeah, my, my first tip would be to lean into engagement. Um, I, I tell this story in the book about a trip we took to Northern Ireland um, a couple of years ago. And, and I honestly, I didn't know much about Northern Ireland at all before going. Um, but we learned a lot about their history while we were there and about this period of time in the, between the 60s and 90s um, where they experienced the troubles. And it was Northern Ireland was trying to decide what their constitutional status was going to be, if they were going to remain part of the United Kingdom or join the Republic of Ireland. And it was just a time of a ton of violence and civil unrest and protests and bombings. It was awful. And so the government in the late 1960s started building what they called these peace walls to keep different areas of Belfast and other neighborhoods separated, areas where predominantly one side was living with another side, and they built these walls to keep them from engaging, thinking that if they didn't engage with one another, that the violence would go away. Mm. And then they found that the exact opposite happened, that the troubles lasted for another 30 years after the peace walls were built, and that kind of, you know, what we've, we've 
probably all experienced some degree or another in our personal lives that when you don't engage with somebody, it's much easier to make caricatures of a person than to see them as an actual human. You know, like we've seen these studies where you have sustained eye contact with someone and, and both parts of the brain and the person and both people, the em empathy centers are activated because there's something about making eye contact with another human that allows us to see them as a human and not just a position or not just an enemy or not just the other. And so I think, you know, that story from Northern Ireland just reminds me whenever I think it's easier to just keep my distance from people who don't see as I do, that when I do that, I'm running the risk of making them something they aren't to making them a representation of a position and not an actual human. And so just leaning into the relationships where we know people don't think like we do, it can get uncomfortable, but reminding ourselves they are real people there, not just the politicians, but the people who follow those politicians are real people and they have families and they have circumstances and experiences that shaped them and their beliefs and how they landed where they did and to not just be dismissive of those. Um, I would also say to let go of this idea of, of certainty to a degree that we have it all figured out and we're just waiting for everybody else to reach the conclusion that we've already reached. <laughs> yes. I think if we could um, stand to be a little bit more humble in our approach in re religion and politics and that this is where I am right now, this is what I've known so far, but I am open to learning and I'm open to you being my teacher. You know, I'm open to, to saying you might have something to teach me that I don't know yet. Mm. Um, I listened to this TED talk a couple of weeks ago. I think Karen or Catherine Schultz is her name. And she asks this question of the audience. What does it feel like to be wrong? And people start throwing these uh answers that are like, you know, it's, it's embarrassing or humiliating, um, disturbing, all these different things. And she goes, no, that's what it feels like when you discover you're wrong, when you're wrong, it just feels like being right. You don't know it. You just think you're, you're just as confident as you were if you're right. And I love that because we all, none of us are holding positions that are knowingly wrong. Mm -hmm. We're all holding positions that we have landed on thinking they're the right ones. And so just knowing that there's a possibility we may have gotten it wrong on some things allows us to be more curious about the positions others are holding because mm. we might have something to learn from them. So those would be my top two. Don't lean away from engagement and don't eliminate the possibility of having gotten it wrong mm. on something. Just want to interrupt this conversation for a second to tell you about today's sponsor, Faithful Counseling. As y'all know, we talk about counseling on No Matter What a lot. There have been several seasons in my life where seeing a licensed therapist has been pivotal to my personal growth and overall well-being. And a question I get all the time is how to start counseling and even where to find a trusted counselor in your area. And while the answer to that question used to be kind of long and complicated, I am so excited to now be able to tell you about Faithful Counseling. The three things I love most about Faithful Counseling. One, it's super easy to start your account and to start getting the help you need in whatever season you're facing. Faithful Counseling assesses your needs and matches you with your own licensed professional therapist in under 24 hours. You can send them messages, set up weekly video or phone sessions, and if you need to, you can switch your counselor at any time for no cost. Two, it's way more affordable than traditional counseling rates. And three, and probably most important to me, you know that you're talking to a certified traditional therapist, but 
also to someone who is a fellow believer and can talk to you from a faith perspective. And right now, Faithful Counseling is offering 10% off your first month if you go to faithfulcounseling.com slash no matter what. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Going to counseling has been pivotal for my own personal growth and well-being. And now I am so grateful to know about Faithful Counseling so I can refer no matter what listeners to their service. Again, it's faithfulcounseling.com slash no matter what to get 10% off your first month of service. One thing I really appreciated is probably at the beginning of your book, you just talk about how, you know, we may have landed on different sides of one camp, but we all have like the same motivation or desire, which is to make this country a better place. You know, it's like we all kind of have the same initial motivation and the way that it has played out and expressed may have led us on opposite sides of a wall, but remembering that we really just want the same thing. We want yeah. our families to be raised in a country where they feel safe. We want our, you know, I mean, we want opportunities for our families. Like we just all want what's we think is best for yeah. ourselves, the people we love in 2016. I think was probably the first time that both my husband and I were really conflicted, like not not even sure if we wanted to vote, not even, you know, I mean, like, what are we going to do? It it had never, I think, been that hard for either of us in our adult life. And interestingly, one thing that we also both decided together was that Facebook was getting so volatile and, you know, people just being angry. And we both agreed, like, I'm just not going to engage people on Facebook. I mean, you talk, you talk about like your aunt or your high school best friend or whoever, your neighbor posts something and realizing like this, it may not even be bait, but to me it's bait. Like I'm not going to take the bait. There is no good thing that will come from me posting on this. They, no one a is ever convinced that they're wrong or to like jump sides via Facebook. That's right. Um, You're preaching to your own choir and then you're just making other people angry. And then What we decided was like, I don't see social media for us. Some people see social media as a great platform to engage. And like, I'm happy for you. (laughs) But for (laughs) us, we decided social media is not a place. But we cared deeply about having conversations around our dinner table about everything that was going on. And so we were really intentional about inviting folks over who we knew felt really strongly about Trump, who felt really strongly about Hillary. And we, I mean, and, and, and people who we respected and valued the way we valued their relationship. We respected the way they lived their life, um, their moral compass, like all these things that made us love and respect and value this person. And we're sitting around a dinner table going, okay, tell us why Mm -hmm. are you voting for Trump? Like, I, I want to understand, help me understand. Okay. Tell me, why do you think Hillary Clinton is, you know, in some ways I look back on that season. I'm like, man, we grew so much. We learned so much. And I think a lot, the, the number one takeaway was walking forward with our hands open of like, we do not have it figured out. I mean, I don't think all those people we had at our dinner table have it figured out either, but they're convinced, you know, <laughs> they're at least convinced in there <laughs> and they're standing, but going like, okay, what was m- most important to us out of that season, honestly, was just like learning from our friends and family mm-hmm. and trying to just understand a different uh, point of view. And that might be easier when you don't have a point of view. I mean, I think we were, that's where we were. We were like grappling with what do we even do. But I think that that kind of set a rhythm for us moving forward of like, even if I think I've got this figured out, because I care about that person so much, I want to care about why they think the way they think, why they are voting for that candidate. 
Yeah. And I think you're, I think you're right. And in, in that you invited people over that you already had a relationship with and that you had a respect and mutual respect for, I think that's a big deal. Like I, I would not suggest people enter into a random kind of echo chamber on Facebook or Twitter and just engage with, you know, these kind of robots, people, whatever they are, avatars, that we need to be engaging with people who are thoughtful about the positions they've landed on. I think that's a big difference that we're not looking to have just these emotional kind of back and forth, but people who have really taken the time to land where they are and, have, and are thoughtful about it. And I think that makes all the difference in the world because when you can, when you know somebody and you know the experiences they've lived and the things that they've walked through to land where they do, then you're just going to respect how they got there a lot better. Even if you don't respect the position, you can respect how they arrived there. Mm-hmm. And I think just beginning there and saying, I can respect your process is something, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that seems like such a small thing, but I'm not sure that people are even able to do that right now. So yeah. just being able to, to find something to respect, something that's a common a common ground that's shared between you, all of those are great places to start. And they seem very simple and, you know, Pollyanna kind of pie in the sky. But I really do believe that if we can just find one thing to appreciate and respect and honor in somebody else, I think it's, it's the beginning of building a bridge. Mm. I asked on Instagram what questions folks would have for you. And one that I got over and over and over in just different ways was essentially how do I respond to, interact with, deal with, whatever, a family member who I'm going to be with. It made me think of SNL in 2016 came out with like this hilarious, I think it was, maybe it was an Adele song. I can't remember. But yeah, they were like sitting at the Thanksgiving dinner table, like, (laughs) and everyone's like up in arms over politics, essentially over the election. Um, And that's everyone's question again, is like, I am going to be sitting across a table. I'm going to be in a living room with a family member who is hell bent on convincing me that I am wrong and they are right. And like, they're not leaving until I admit or I commit to voting for their candidate next time (laughs) it comes around. Um, Like, how do we respond, deal with, interact with whatever word you want to choose yeah. <laughs> um, with, some, with someone like that, that, that is, yeah. that is going to be in our face. Yeah. Angry about it. Yeah. I would say my, my first thing is you don't have to attend every argument you're invited to. Hmm. And that's super tempting because I, again, we all have opinions and, and convictions and beliefs. And sometimes, you know, this is one of those things where it may be that there's an argument going on about one of your beliefs but you also know this other person holds a fundamentally different belief and it's not worth the emotional energy to engage in this mm-hmm. because nobody's changing their mind. Right. And so you just got to figure out what's worth the emotional energy. You are not, you do not, you're not charged with changing anybody's mind, with saving anybody from themselves and their opinions. You know, that's not our, in our job description. But I think when we start to go into conversations with the goal of understanding instead of changing minds, mm-hmm. I think that helps a lot. This and my husband does this masterfully. I'm not as good at it because I want to, you know, argue. But he's great at just being like, "Oh, tell me more about that," or "Hey, did you see this?" and "What were your thoughts on this article or on this position?" Yeah. And just in a very non-combative, question-asking way. But the other thing to keep in mind is, I think the verse. I want to. I want to say Romans. It's that verse is as far as it depends on you, mm. live at peace with one another. And I think in seasons like this, it is so important to remember that first part of the verse, as far as it depends on you, and that we are not called to experience peace. We are called to seek peace as much as we can. But at the end of the day, to make peace requires two people who are willing to do it. 
to seek peace requires one person, and that's all we can do. We are not responsible for making somebody else want to engage in a healthy dialogue. We can only do our part. And if they don't want to do it or are incapable of doing it, then we need to make the decision. What's the best thing for me to do? Is it to continue to engage, back away, to you know, keep some distance? You know, don't write off the relationship, but just figure out what the boundaries are for each interaction and just know, you know, what are the signals in your own body to look for to know that, hey, I'm getting kind of heated. Maybe yeah. I need to take a break and, and yeah. paying attention to that. You know, there isn't going to be a formula. Um, there's not a one size fits all, but I think we've got to pay more attention to the emotion we're bringing to the conversation and our motives coming to the conversation. Mm. Are we trying to change somebody's mind or are we trying to understand are we trying to make peace or are we trying to subdue their opinion? You know, what is it that we're trying to bring to the conversation? What are they trying to bring to it? Because if they're not willing to make peace, then that's not going to happen. And that that's okay. It's not because of anything you did or didn't do. It's because they're not there yet. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Would you tell the story about the time that you were reading a book and your dad's name was mentioned and your head caught on fire? <laughs> <laughs> that that pretty much explains it right there. Yeah. I was reading this book and it was a, it was more of a um, religion book, spirituality book. So I, I was used to reading, you know, more political books and occasionally coming across his name where I expected it. But this was a book I was not expecting it. This was a more political chapter. So I thought there was a possibility, but honestly, I just was reading it and all of a sudden saw his name in reference to a theology um, that this, that author was describing and saying that my dad held this particular theology. And I was like, that is not only inaccurate, that is, that's like a harmful theology. And that would be very offensive if my dad held this. Um, and I got super fired up about it. The book was several years old. So I wasn't quite sure like how to go about, you know, um, figuring out where this author was, but I was like, I could do the, the typical social media rants, you know, the public shaming that oh, we can yeah. do quickly. Seriously, it's consider cathartic. that. It's cathartic. <laughs> and then I called my husband and he talked me off the ledge. Mm-hmm. I take a deep breath. Um, and so I decided to try to write an email and figure out if I could get the email to this, this author. And I got, I ended up finding it through the publisher and I just sent him an email saying, Hey, this is my name. This is my maiden name. You referenced my dad in his book and this in your book. And I just want you to know, this is, does not represent who he is. And, um, I, I don't think that it was a fair representation of his beliefs. And this is why I know this is not how he believes because of, you know, the daughters that he's raised and how they live and, um, mostly how it had to do with women. But then I went on to say, and I just need you to know my dad and I don't land on the same page on a lot of things politically anymore. And it's not that I'm just, you know, defending him because I think my side is right and your side is wrong. I'm defending him as a human, knowing that I don't agree with everything he says. Mm -hmm. And I thought that would kind of just be the end of the email, but within 20 minutes, he wrote me back. And that was shocking to me. And he was super apologetic at the top, you know, spent like a paragraph talking about that. And then he went on to tell me about his own family situation. And he said that he, so this guy was more liberal politically and theologically. And he said he had a grown son who was quote unquote rebelling against him, (laughs) who was going conservative. And he said, I would be curious to hear more how you're navigating these tensions in your family, because this is what's happening in my family. And we just kind of went back and forth with each other and sharing our experiences. But that line, I would be curious to hear more, um, just stuck out to me because all of a sudden we were humans trying to navigate our complicated family relationships. And this wasn't a theology issue. And this wasn't a politics issue. This was, I want to stay connected to my dad. 
he wants to stay connected to his son, to his granddaughter, his, his son's daughter. And we're just trying to figure out how to do that. And so we became friends on Facebook. And I, you know, I say in the book, we, I don't agree with everything he posts. I'm certain he doesn't agree with everything I post, but I get glimpses into his life. I see him with his son. I see him with his granddaughter. And I know that there's so much more that connects them than these um, differing political ideologies. And so I just, I think just that posture difference of instead of trying to shame somebody for landing where they are or where, where they did, approaching one another with a curiosity of asking those questions like you did with your friends around the dinner table. T- help me understand how you landed here. Help me understand what you experienced that caused you to change your mind on this and to move in this direction. I think it's super helpful. I just loved that story when I read it because I think, wow, few of us would find ourselves in a in the exact situation that you are in all of us will find ourselves in a situation where someone says something that does make our head catch on fire yeah. and yeah. the choice in how we respond and while you were i mean you rightly so wanted to stand up and defend your dad because it was incorrect information and right, right. it was like harmful to him um but it opened you you still did it in a way that allowed conversation to continue and a relationship to grow and i don't think most of us do that on our even our good days you know um you and your book at the end of each chapter have a section called what now I loved this about your book the what now sections that Sarah wrote are essentially kind of like a a kind of quick summary maybe even a little bit of another anecdote or some quotes but then some hard takeaways questions to ask yourselves things to think through I don't know if you wrote in this way but as I was reading I was like oh my gosh this is like a great like book club kind of book thing where you're pulling together a small group of people and saying like hey let's read this and go through this and go through these questions together I mean I just imagined like if you did it in such an intentional way of pulling together friends that you know don't all agree, but that would be willing to have civil, <laughs> you know, helpful, not harmful conversations. Yeah. But one of those questions that I wrote down was whose story may be showing you a new way of seeing God in the world. And I don't know if that was even from the chapter that you share that story. Maybe it was, but I mean, that to me is like, it, his story was one way that you got to see a new way of God in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, why is that question important for us to grapple with? And what do we do if we can't even answer that question? Yeah, I think um, I understand that it's hard to ask that question because again, it, that to ask that means we're coming from a place of humility and knowing that there's more for us to learn. Um, there's more for us to learn about each other, but also about God. And I think if, you know, we hold on to the very foundational idea that we're all image bearers and that, you know, God has made us in his image, Mm -hmm. then that means that there is an image of God in that person that I would not experience unless I was in relationship in some or interacting with that person in some form or fashion. And so really an inability to interact with someone different from us is making the decision to not interact with a facet of God right? We're saying, I, I don't want to understand this about God. I don't want to engage with this image of God in this person. And that, that to me, you know, raises the stakes a little bit. This isn't just a, oh, I don't really get along with this person. It's saying God is represented in who they are. And I'm choosing to be dismissive of that. That's a bigger deal than just having a disagreement with someone. And I, I just think we've got to start to see that the stakes are higher and talking about it in that way, because, you know, I, I think God really celebrates diversity 
And he doesn't, he's not a God who's after sameness, but if we are only hanging out with people and engaging with people who are like the same as we are in our positions and our views, then we've just really narrowed who God is. So we need to celebrate the diversity that God represents. And that means in some cases getting uncomfortable with the conversations we need to have, because if we, if we're not uncomfortable, I just think we've made God so small and that's not a God I want to worship. If I can fit him in my box, he's way too small. Yeah. So I think just beginning to see that there are stories and there's encounters people have had um, with the Holy Spirit and with God's um, you know, presence on earth and in relationships that we just need to be asking questions about to learn from before we're making judgments about. How does interacting with folks that who hold differing opinions from us, how is it the same or different within the Christian community versus outside of the, like a Christian then engaging with someone who's not a believer. Is it different? How is it different? Why is it different? Yeah. Well, I would like to think if it's believers that all of us are coming to the table with the idea of unity in mind. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, it goes back to the idea of unity, but not sameness. So I don't, I think that sometimes we, we go at it with believers thinking, okay, we all need to land on the same page. And that's not like, there's, there is, there can be unity in diversity and that's, that's a good thing. We don't want to like do away with that. But I think if we're all coming to the same table with the idea of being representatives of God, being image bearers of God and having that fundamental understanding of, of Jesus as this peacemaker, then I think that should kind of propel us towards making peace with one another as, as well. I'm not sure that people outside of church would necessarily have that motivation. They might. Um, and I would think people, you know, other followers of Jesus might not have that motivation, but I think as followers of Jesus, that is what we are called to. We are called to, to make peace with one another and figuring out how to do that. So I think that there's probably more on the line for us just as representatives of Jesus in the church. Um, I, I just think we have not done a very good job. I don't think the world is looking at us saying, when I think of Christians, I think of how well they treat each other. I think they're looking at us and saying, when I think of Christians, I think of how they are playing the God card when it comes to their politics. Yeah. I think that's just the first thing they think of, you know, for right or wrong or whatever side that is. Um, and I'm just not sure that's, that's the taste we want to leave in people's mouths when it comes to our reputation. So I do think it should look different. I think it it could look the same, but we have the command to go after peace. Um, follow uh, people who don't follow Jesus don't have that same command, but we, it, that is asked of us and it's asked that we represent Jesus by how well we love each other. Mm -hmm. So we don't have another option. Yeah. Yeah. The stakes are high. I mean, that's what I think. It's like the stakes are high within the church. And when you're engaging with folks who aren't Christ followers, because just like, like Jesus said, they will know you're my disciple by the way you love each other. Like, and, and I don't think our reputation outside of the church is like, oh, wow, Christians, they just all get along. And they're, I mean, I love that the unity versus sameness concept. I think the same, if you think about um, a marriage, like in a marriage of 40, 50 years, I was asking my dad the other day, you know, they've been married 40 years now, he and my mom. And I asked him, do you think y'all are more similar or even more dissimilar 40 years into marriage than in your first year? You know, you think about, they were like 22 and 23 when they got married, um, very different people. So, so do you kind of grow more alike and just kind of share <laughs> take parts of each other and share over 40 years. And he looked at me and said, 
No, I think we're more different than ever because I think the older we get, the more we fully become the unique person that God created us to be. And so he's like, I am more uniquely who I am today. Your mom is more uniquely. So, so they're more different and yet they're more unified after 40 years than ever. What a great question to ask your parents. I love that. Well, you know, I was interviewing for a podcast. So it wasn't like, but it, <laughs> but it did, it crossed my mind as we were, I don't remember what we we're talking about, but I just thought, huh, that's, you know, cause I think it would be easy for Tyler and I've only been married six years at this point. Like, oh yeah, we'll become more alike. Well, I don't think that's, I mean, based on my parents, that's not a realistic expectation. Okay. I want to talk about some scripture. We always talk about scripture on no matter what. So was there a passage or a specific story in the Bible that you, that really kind of was the core of this message as you started fleshing out your book, fleshing out this idea of, you know, engaging in this space between us of trying to find civility and peace amidst all of this tension that religion and politics create? Yeah, I would say kind of the, the story that I kept coming back to in my mind as I was kind of trying to figure out, because I really wanted to figure out, it is about how Jesus teaches us to live together. And I really wanted to keep coming back to, okay, well, is this something like Jesus really demonstrated and how, and what that looked like in his ministry? And so the story I kept coming back to is from um, the gospel of Luke. And I, I tell this story in um, one of the earlier chapters, but it's this idea of how Jesus did not fit in people's boxes and that that was okay. And so the story is he's, I think he's on his way. I don't know if it's to Jericho. I can't remember anyway. And there's a man who is asking to be healed and he, Jesus heals him. And it says the crowd goes wild. They love it. Um, and then he goes on, keeps going and he comes into another town and the crowds are lining the street and they're cheering for him. And this time there's a tax collector. Zacchaeus is up in the tree, kind of catching a glimpse of, of what's going on down there. And I love this because Zacchaeus does not try to get Jesus's attention. Everybody else is trying to, but it's almost like Zacchaeus knows it probably wouldn't go well if he tried to catch Jesus's attention because he represents everything it seemed like Jesus would oppose. He's a tax collector. He's working for the Roman government um, to, you know, to the detriment of the Jewish people. He's overtaxing them. He's pocketing the extra. He's in the top 1% when it comes to the wealthy. Um, he's everything you would think Jesus would be against. And so he's probably thinking, I don't want him to look up here because I'm afraid of what he would say if he did. And, but Jesus calls out to him and calls him down and says, I'm coming over to your house to eat dinner tonight. And the thing that I love about the story is what Luke includes at the very end of that. He says, and the crowd grumbled. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, if that isn't the perfect description of what happens when Jesus disrupts our ideas of him, it creates something in us that makes us grumble, right? It's like, because the crowd is going, wait, I thought you were for the marginalized. I thought you were for the oppressed to the exclusion of the powerful and the wealthy and the tax collectors and all these people in in powerful positions. And Jesus was never for one group to the exclusion of another one. I think he was against the posture that powerful people tended to have towards the oppressed, but he was never looking at the oppressed and saying, you are more important to me than the powerful person. And he was never looking at the powerful powerful people and saying, you're more important to me than the marginalized. All of them were equally important. He found a way to engage all of them which made both sides, honestly, a little mad and angry and ticked off. And maybe that's, you know, how things ended the way that they did or why they ended the way they did, that nobody felt like he was fulfilling the expectations that they had for him. 
Yeah. And so that to me was the idea I kept coming back to is that there is, there is a tension we should feel when it comes to following Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it's bad that we feel that tension when it comes to our faith and our politics with each other. We've just got to figure out a way to make relational peace, even if we aren't landing on the same page. Mm -hmm. How do we make peace with one another and continue to follow Jesus in the direction of making that peace? Mm -hmm. The grumbling of the people in that story immediately reminded me of Jonah and thinking about how God called Jonah to go, you know, preach to the Ninevites. And of course, we read that in the beginning, you think like the Ninevites were like terrifying people. They literally like, like put stakes through people's bodies and like skinned them alive. Like they were, (laughs) it was not a place you would want to go and preach (laughs) a message of like repent or be destroyed. Um, But then at the end... Well, I mean, we, we all know the story too well. I mean, of course, the Ninevites do repent. They grieve. They turn to the Lord. And Jonah grumbles. He's right. dead. Right. And and we learn. I mean, then Jonah's like, I knew you, I knew they were going to repent. I knew you were going to save them. And yeah. I think it was my dad. It could have been another preacher. But um, I always think of this tagline when I think of Jonah now is when God's grace makes you angry. Yeah. And, you know, thinking about what is the posture of my heart? And am I wanting to, whether it's like, I'm, am I wanting to see God's grace extended to people who seem evil to me? Or am I even willing to consider that God uh, loves this other person who is voting for a different candidate and not only loves them, but likes them and, you know, created them? I think it's a worthy question that we should all grapple with on November 3rd and following if we are, if we are experiencing so much tension between people that we love and know and our neighbors and our Facebook friends and whatever, something my mentor taught me is like when I'm feeling that like angst and tension and annoyance and anger, the first question to ask is like, what's going on in my heart? What's the sin in me that's reacting this way? And yes, that other person may be, it could be a sin issue. I'm not politics aside at this point, like you can, something can happen and someone's sin could trigger something in you, but it it could be your sin. (laughs) Also your sin and only you can control you. And I just think, man, if we could all come more from that place of like, is God's grace making me angry? Is God's love for that person making me angry? Am I willing to, to think that maybe God would ask that person to invite him over to dinner and he wants to sit at that guy's table? Right. Right. Yeah. I think that that's a great, that's a great point that we are, we're constantly, our default is going to be making enemies out of people Mm -hmm. and to want to create teams out of people and to make us in and them out. Like that is going to be our default every single time. And so learning to pay attention to really, you know, Jesus's tendency in scripture was never to be pointing out somebody else's faults, but to almost like hold up a mirror to themselves so that they could see for themselves what was causing the kind of angst or sin in their, in their own lives. And I think that is the posture we have to hold. We can't be responsible for what other people, the conclusions they draw, the beliefs that they hold, we can only be responsible for ourselves, which is a lot trickier. But I think that's, that's what Jesus has called us to do, to be honest about ourselves and, and kind of where we land when it comes to our, our judgments about others. Yeah. Okay. I have one final question and then I have something I want to ask of you, but the final question is whether folks are listening to this on November 3rd or December 3rd, what is one thing that you wish every listener really understood? 
Yeah, I think the number one thing I would want people to understand is that it is easier to buy into a narrative about a political party or a group of people, a politician um, as a figurehead than the actual human, than it is to get to know the nuances of the names of the people involved in those groups or parts of that group or the, the actual human behind that politician. And just to remember that the nuances will always complicate things, but that we have not been invited into a world of binaries. We've been invited to, to live in the gray in between and to figure out how to recognize the humanity in one another and that narratives are only ever going to tell part of the story and to always lean in and to always ask more questions. And if we're drawing conclusions too quickly or too easily, then chances are there's probably more for us to learn. So to have a posture of curiosity and humility towards one another and learning the names and not just narratives. At the very end of your book, you share a liturgy that you wrote for the space between us. Would you close our time together by kind of reading that liturgy over us? And I mean, for the, if it is November 3rd, like sit in this, y'all. If it's December 3rd, still sit in this. But Sarah, would you read that over us? Yeah. Yeah. I wrote this in 2016 after election day when it felt very tense and I was spending Thanksgiving with my family and we were all going to be together. And it was just kind of obvious that things were not at a great place with the country and how we all are feeling. So I just kind of wrote this as a, as a liturgy for the space between us. For family near and peaceable, Lord, we give thanks. For family far and conflicted, Lord, we give thanks. For the ones easy to love, Lord, we give thanks. For the ones we fight to love, Lord, we give thanks. For people who see as we see, Lord, we give thanks. For people we don't understand, Lord, we give thanks. For people who don't understand us, Lord, we give thanks. For easy conversation and expressed affection, Lord, we give thanks. For gentle discord within our discourse, Lord, we give thanks. For unity, not sameness, Lord, we give thanks. For charity in all things, Lord, we give thanks. For a world that reflects your goodness, Lord, we give thanks. For humankind that bears your image, Lord, we give thanks. For a day when we'll delight in our differences and not just tolerate them. For a gathering of every tribe and every tongue. For a table and a feast today, anticipating the one we'll enjoy with you someday. Lord, we give thanks. Amen. Sarah Bauer Anderson, author of The Space Between Us, How Jesus Teaches Us to Live Together When Politics and Religion Pull Us Apart. Y'all, go get yourself a copy and read it before Thanksgiving or Christmas with your family. It will so encourage you and challenge you and push you um, really into being who God created you to be in this season. Sarah, thanks so much for coming on No Matter What. Thank you, Hannah. It was so fun talking to you. Hey friends, one last thing before you go, you may have heard my friend Christy Wright on season one of No Matter What, and Christy just came out with a new devotional called Living True, 40 Days to Get Back to You. I don't know about you, but there have been certain seasons in my life, whether it's been a transition into change or just from the busyness of life, that I have really forgotten who I am and who God created me to be. And that's why Christy wrote this devotional. It will help you reset and refocus on the truth of who God is, who you are, 
where you are and where you're going. I have a copy. I've been going through it and y'all, it is so good. Living True, 40 Days to Get Back to You. You can buy it at your favorite online book retailer or at DaveRamsey.com. And until next time, praying that you will be who God has created you to be no matter what.